Good morning to all, and uh, welcome to our service this morning. We uh, glad for the presence of each one, especially you as visitors. Glad you're here this morning and chose to worship with us. With us, I too enjoyed the uh, Sunday school hour and uh, the uh, the lessons we learned there. Very timely, and uh, I didn't have a clue that uh, the Sunday school lesson would tie in a little with what I choose. I'm choosing to speak about this morning. But that's all right. Um, it's it's not treading over it much, but it kind of just uh, lent itself to a nice um, introduction to what I'd like to speak on. So the title of my message is Godly Stewardship in an Indulgent World. My mind went to this subject for a variety of reasons. Um, this week I made my annual trip to the accountant, and... Um, my uh, my experiences with the accountant are a little bit different than what they were, say, 30 years ago um, or 20 years ago, whatever you might want to say. Um, there's a normal trajectory in life that um, any of you that are probably post-50 years old know something about, and that is when a person... You know, starts out in life, he gets married, whatever. You know, he's starting here. And um, this is kind of where his expense line is. His income line is probably somewhere there. And so, you know, he starts out here and, and maybe with, with some raises and whatever in life, his, his income maybe goes a little like this. Your expense line, once you start hitting, once you buy a house and you have some children, whatever, suddenly that, that takes a sharp uptick and depending on how life goes from you, this line might even exceed this line at times. And so you have this little weaving around. But, you know, at some point, this line starts to kind of flatten out. Maybe this one does too. But then you, you know, the house maybe gets paid for and the children maybe start to leave home. And so the expense line starts to go like this. But the income line maybe continues to go up or flattens out. But you have you have this widening um, little um, difference there that is probably in North America, maybe we're a little unique to that, but that's a little the way it works. Uh, I'm speaking just quite, you know, in the normal trajectory of life. And somehow I'm finding myself in that section a little bit more than what I used to. And so it's not quite as fun to visit the accountant because I used to visit the accountant and was happy for the fat check I'd get back from Uncle Sam. Well, now Uncle Sam's happy for the fat check he's going to get from me. So the tables have turned a little bit. So it, it, it caused me probably to reflect a little bit more this year for some reason than what I have before, just how much life has indeed changed for me in the last 30 years. Um, when Darla and I moved here in 1995, almost 30 years ago now, um, some of the decisions we made were very, very simple. When we went to the grocery store, we bought as little as possible, and the brand we bought was always easy. It was just the cheapest one. Whatever's the cheapest is what we bought. So, you know, you'd look, you go to the shaving cream, and, well, it's just whatever's cheapest. It's just, just the way it was. In fact, um, just you might find this interesting, you might find it appalling, I'm not sure what, but as a dairy farmer that had some fatted calves that we could actually kill and had some steak, we chose not to do that, but rather we, we would eat ground turkey 
and send the, the cattle off to the livestock market because the checkbook just demanded that their, their money needed to be in there and ground turkey was pretty cheap. So I still well remember the first time I ate steak about two years after a hiatus from doing so. I, it was just like, it was just a really, um, otherworldly experience almost. So, uh, anyway, that's, that's just a little bit of our background. But you know, that's not the case anymore. Darla hasn't bought, bought ground turkey in quite a long time. We, we eat a little differently. And I say to myself, I guess that's okay, but you know, why did I make the decisions I made along the way back in those days? I think, uh, I think there's a real temptation for me, I don't know how it is for you, but there's a real temptation for me to judge my lifestyle by comparing myself and my choices to what everybody else is doing around me. Like what, what's society doing? What's, you know, how's my brothers and sisters in church? How do they, how do they relate to things? And, and make my choices on my purchases, my, um, well, just a whole host of things lifestyle-wise, based on kind of what's happening around me. I, I, I'm sure I do some of that, I, and I'm, unless I'm completely uh, different, I, I would assume maybe you do too. But I do think that perhaps my, my grappling with some of these matters um, probably has to do with a result of some of my life experiences, just like I related to you here just now, and as growing up as a boy, um, I certainly did not grow up in a family that would have ever been mistaken for wealthy. That's that's for sure. And so, I guess I guess I spent a fair segment of my life, to use Paul's terminology, more abased than abounding. All right. So so now that I'm a, a little bit more on the abounding side of things, um, I sit down and I say, well, how much should that adjust how I use my my blessings that God has given to me, or, or, or even sometimes I wonder if they're blessings. It's like, is this some sort of a test that God is putting me to? I'm not sure, always. There was another thing that uh, happened to me this week. Um, at my uh, wife's grandfather's auction, as he was auctioning off his uh, earthly possessions as he ended his life, there was a box of uh, miscellaneous things that got sold, and one of the things that that I was um, interested in and happened to pick up was a a Lancaster Conference Statement of Faith from 1954. And uh, so if you do the math, that's 70 years old this year. And it really has nothing to do with us here sitting in this building this morning. We don't have any ties necessarily to the Lancaster Conference. But just as an, as an interest thing, I was looking through that this week. And in the back of this thing, there's... Um, a section called a supplement, and underneath that it says Christian graces, and uh, is a, it's an it's a, an eclectic collection, you might want to say, of just a variety of things that I guess in 1954 LMC considered graces that would be you know prudent for their people to look at, and the very first grace, if you will, that they have in this little supplement. It's called Stewardship and Materialism, and I'm just going to read this to you. It says it like this, Extravagance in any form is not consistent with the teachings of the Scriptures. Therefore, we urge that our members refrain from useless and wasteful expenditure of money in their homes, 
on their persons or in their living, and recommend that in all things that they seek to give an account of their stewardship as faithful servants of Christ. Uh, one thing I did find interesting for the, for as specific as there, as a lot of the things in this particular statement are, that particular statement is pretty, uh, you can go about anywhere with that you want to. It's, in other words, they're putting the onus on you uh, as the reader to decide whether you are, um, how does it say it? Whether you are, um, wasteful or using your money in a useless way. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what what uh, metric he was supposed to use to figure that out. Well, that got me thinking. I'm like, well, I wonder if we have anything in our statement that's uh, anything close to that. And we do. And I'm just going to read that to you as well. And this is on uh, page 10 of our statement. It says, in the use of our possessions, and it reads like this, we recognize that all our possessions are gifts from God and that we are accountable as stewards for their use. In an effort toward good stewardship and as a witness to the world that we are pilgrims on the earth and do not have here an enduring city, we will avoid extravagance in all areas of life, including our houses, our furnishings, and vehicles. In this area, we recognize the value of wisdom of the collective brotherhood. We encourage our brothers and sisters to seek out the counsel of the brotherhood in areas where there may be question about the expediency of an investment item or issue. And then the second paragraph reads like this, as stewards, we all, pos- all we possess is ultimately God's to give and to take. Recognizing this fact and because of the sense of self-sufficiency that is fostered by insurance, we will exercise caution and discretion in the use of insurance. We discourage the use of life insurance. So that's just um, how our statement reads. And, and there's some similarities to what the um, statement I read to you in 1954 reads. So I found it interesting that in, um, in the 1954 LMC statement that I read to you, the supporting scripture for that was Luke 16. So you can turn to that. Uh, I was like, well, I wonder, wonder where they, they uh, what, what they suggested as the supporting scripture, and that was the one they gave. So I turned to that, and I was like, of all the scriptures they could have pointed to, I found this very interesting. And it's one of the most difficult parables, from, from my perspective, to even interpret that, that Jesus gave. And so we're going to delve into this chapter this morning, and we're going to to decide what we can learn about stewardship from this particular chapter. Now, it's 31 verses, but I'm going to read the whole chapter because you have to to, to, to actually understand what's trying to be said here. Luke 16, verse 1. And he said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it? How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do. That when I am put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, Said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? 
And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, sit down quickly, write fifty. And he said to another, How much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. He said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commanded the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. He that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him, and said unto him, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were unto John since that time. The kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. For it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, at, which laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his, in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, Neither can they which pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one would, if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. All right. So let's go back to the beginning of this, this chapter, to this parable of what we call the unjust steward. It's, it's, um, the thing that's so interesting about this parable is you had this scoundrel of a steward that if you just read it, just, you know, as it's given, at the end you had this Lord who was going to call this unjust steward into account, actually commending this guy. He's like, 
you know, you're a scoundrel and I'm going to fire you, but, man, you're kind of a smart one. You know, it, it, and it's like, you know, how are we supposed to fit this all in when the hero of the story is actually the scoundrel? And that is who we are. So it's like I've always read this, kind of said, hmm, I think I kind of know what it's saying. But I was never quite sure I could piece it all together. So I, I tried to do that as we, um, as we look, as I looked at that this week. Here is my conclusion. And, um, if you have more insight on this, I, um, I'm very happy to entertain that at some point. In the case of a steward, a steward was given, uh, unbelievable, um, oversight of his Lord's things. Um, think Joseph. Remember how Joseph was talked about in Genesis? It said that Potiphar didn't even know what was happening in his house. I mean, Joseph, he had full run of things, and there was this relationship between Potiphar and Joseph that Joseph had Potiphar's full trust, and he was just like, you do it, you invest, you do your thing, you, you do whatever you want to with my, my things, and it worked out well for Potiphar. Uh, things went well for him. That's kind of how a good steward would work in the Bible. He was given unbelievable oversight. But in this particular story, he obviously was not properly executing his position. We don't know what his offense was. We don't know whether he was making poor investments. We are not given the offense. My thought is, and this is just my thought, I can't tell you this from the from the Word of God, that probably what he was doing was taking the, the, his Lord's goods and spending them on himself. Just kind of the way this guy turns out being later on. I'm thinking he's pilfering off some money and he's going out and having a good time with this money. That's what I think he's doing. Whatever he was doing, the, the, the steward got, or the, uh, the rich man got word of this. His master got word of this and he said, I'm coming back and there's a day of reckoning for this, for this steward. The steward hears this and he says, what am I going to do? I mean, all I know how to do is be a steward. You know, sit around the office and and invest money and spend it, in his case. He said, I'm not a farmer or a ditch digger. I'm not going to do that. And it's not going to look good for me to go out on the streets and beg. I'm, like, too proud to do that. So he's there thinking and he's like, I got it. I know exactly what I'll do. I'll go out to each one of my my uh, master's debtors, and I will forgive them their debts to a certain point. I'll be really generous with them. I'll get these books all squared up. And because I'm so nice to them, whenever I'm out of a job here, and I go to their door and say, hey, do you kind of remember that time that I like, left you off the hook by like 50%? They'll say, yeah, and they'll feel beholden to me to help me out. I mean, it was, it was brilliant thinking. And apparently the Lord, his Lord, uh, figured this out. And he said, huh, like I said in the beginning, the guy is a scoundrel, but you talk about a clever one. He certainly is that. And he literally gives him accolades for what he did. So now if we're supposed to identify with the steward, what... What are we supposed to make of this? Well, the first thing that we, the first parallel we can make is that we all agree there's a day of reckoning coming for us too, right? Someday, the Bible says, we'll all stand before the judgment bar of God. 
and we will give an account for the things we did on the earth. So those two things line up. Furthermore, the punchline of the story is, what are you and I doing with our Lord's goods that is making our existence, when we fail, if you will, when we die, what what are we doing that will make that so that we will uh, have a good life after we fail, after we're fired from our responsibilities here on, on earth, if you will. So, if, if you follow, if you follow Jesus' teaching here, what he's actually saying is, you and I need to be, to be looking at using the wealth that we currently have, and if we take this story the way it reads, we need to be giving it away, right? The wealth that we have stewardship over, in some way we need to be giving that away or using that in such a way that we're preparing for our future. In this particular case, the guy's only looking beyond his earthly a need for a new job. In our case, we're, we're looking for what lies beyond the doors of death. So then we, uh, we get into uh, more, more commentary of Jesus here in uh, verses 9 through 13, where he, he elaborates more on this particular par- parable. And even some of this commentary is a little bit hard to, to understand. But obviously in verses 10 through 13, he's saying that how we handle material wealth is certainly an indicator of how we will handle the true riches. And of course, the true riches he's talking about are the things that pertain unto the spiritual. Um, verse 11, he says, if you, if, if you are not faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit into your trust the things that are true riches? And then in verse 12, he, he says that if a man does not handle another person's money in an honorable way, that is wise, how can he ever be entrusted to what is not his own? If he can't handle somebody else's well, how can he handle his own well? And, and this one is really hard for me to wrap my mind around. But I, I think what he's saying is if we cannot be entrusted to handle our Lord's wealth that he has given us, all right, everything we have is from God, including our money and our car and everything else. We understand that. It's, it's God's, right? And if we cannot be entrusted to use that in a wise way, and in our situation, uh, unlike this, this Lord here, our Lord wishes for us to actually give it away, right? That's what he expects. He expects us to use it wisely in a way that blesses others around us. That's what he wishes to do. So in other words, he's saying, if you can't handle, if you cannot accumulate wealth, know how to use it, you know, what you need, and then the, the excess to disperse to others, how can, how can you possibly be entrusted with the true riches again? And then, he, and then verse 13, he sums up a great New Testament principle. You can't serve both. You will serve one or the other. You can't have it both ways. There's nobody that ever has gotten by with saying, I'm a servant of God, but at the same time, it's obvious to everybody around him that he's not really serving God, he's serving money. Um, you can't do it both ways. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve mammon. So that, that's kind of the simple explanation of this, of this parable. 
Well, now we, uh, we run into verse 14 through 18. And these verses at first sight don't seem like they really fit. It feels like, it feels like Jesus is getting off, off, um, subject here. But if you notice what happened, he's talking to his disciples in verse 1, but the Pharisees were hanging around the periphery enough that they heard it, and it says the Pharisees who were covetous heard all of these things. And rather than being challenged in their hearts, they derided him, it says. And when you deride somebody, you are, um, you're making fun of them. You're ridiculing them. And so at this point, Jesus kind of enters into a little conversation with the Pharisees. And, and like conversations often go, he kind of ran off track a little bit. I mean, just I, I'm convinced that verses 14 to 18 are a summary of the conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. I'm with John, the last verse of the Apostle John. He says, I suppose that if we tried to write down everything that Jesus said or done on this earth, the whole world couldn't contain the books that needed to be written. I'm thinking that's what this conversation is about. Some of it seems to fit with the rest of the chapter. The thing on uh, on divorce doesn't really seem to fit. But I just think that somehow in this in this course of this conversation with the Pharisees, they kind of touched on that a little bit, and, and Luke was like, you know what, that's that's important enough, I'll just put that in here too. So that's that's my summary of how that all fits here in this chapter. But just notice to what to what Jesus says um, to them in these short verses that do that does fit with the rest of the chapter. He, he tells the Pharisees, he said, you have a tendency, and, and, you, and you get this out of verse 15, he said, your tendency is that you want to justify your actions by what is socially acceptable, and you carefully stitch together from scripture and circumstances a thought process that will appease your consciences and allow you to live a life of indulgence, and yet at the same time claim to be serving God. You're, you're, you're able to do that because... You justify yourselves before men. But he said, what you don't know is God knows your heart. And the truth of the matter is, the things that you highly esteem and your friends highly esteem and is socially acceptable and considered completely within the realms of godliness is actually an abomination to God. That's That's the true facts of this thing here. And then furthermore, he goes on in verse 16, and I only want to pick out the very last few verses of, uh, or I'm sorry, words of verse 16, where he said, if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, this is going to call for some pressing, some real work. It's going to call for wrapping your mind around some principles and practices that are not native to our human way of thinking. It's, it's, it's going to be a different way of doing things. And people that want to follow the kingdom of God and the way that works are going to have to press themselves into it. I'm also interested that he used the word abomination when he was talking about this subject. When something is an abomination to God, that means it is especially detestable and it is comparable to idolatry. And, and it's in a kind of a category all of its own. It is an absolute, uh, I can't even come up with a word that really fits. It's just an abomination. I think we know what it is. It's, it's, which is, God can't stand it, in other words. 
So then, I think, what happens in verse 19 is Jesus begins to pick up and further explain his parable that he gave in the beginning of the chapter. So I think the, the first part of the chapter, the parable, is um, we, we, we grab the lesson out of that. But then he says, I'm going to give you a, a flesh and blood example of what I'm talking about in the first part of the chapter. And he goes on with this story of the rich man and Lazarus, which we oftentimes refer to, but often when we look at that story, the punchline we're going after is something other than I think actually what Jesus is trying to teach us here, you know, we're, we're, we, we turn to this when we want to talk about the doctrine of hell. We, we turn to this when we want to talk about, um, you know, how this works in the other worldly parts, you know, once we pass through the halls of death and so on. And that's totally, I think, I think there's teaching we can get from that. But let's try to look now at what Jesus is teaching us in the context here. So we have a description of a rich man. But you know the only two things we know about are three things. Three things we know about the rich man. We know that he fared sumptuously every day. Okay. We know that he wore purple. And we know that he ignored Lazarus. That's the three things we know about the rich man. We know nothing about his occupation. We don't know how he got his riches. We don't know what else he did. We don't know if he had a wife. We don't know. We know he had brothers. But we don't know anything else about this person except those three things. I guess the fourth thing we know is that when he died, he didn't go to a very good place. That's the other thing we know about him. Let's look a little bit at what we do know. So when it says that this man was clothed in purple and fine linen, what does that mean? Like, does that mean anything to you? Well, it probably doesn't mean as much to us. I don't know. Does anybody have purple on here today? I'm not sure. Maybe. But, you know, we... um, we don't think as purple as being anything beyond pink or blue, do we? But in in this era of time, to wear purple was a statement of unbridled luxury. And I looked into it just a little bit. I won't bore you with the details. But to make the color purple in that time was a very tedious and expensive procedure. And the only people that could afford it was kings and nobles and rich men. So if you wore purple, you were a who's who of society. There was no good reason to wear purple beyond making a statement. Um, there was, it did not add, uh, any, any, um, uh, like wear factor to your garment. It, it didn't do anything beyond simply by looking at your robe, you would know this guy is in the upper echelons of society. That's, that's what it meant. Now, as far as the fairing sumptuously, if you're like me, in the context here, when you read it over fast, at least me, maybe you don't, but I always figured, well, then he ate really good, right? Because it talks about the crumbs that fell from his table and so on. He, but he didn't bother picking up the crumbs. I mean, they just got swept up, right? So in my mind, I, I, I interpret that as that the man ate well. But if you look at the, if you look at the words fairing sumptuously, in like a, a Greek dictionary, it's much broader than that. Basically what it means is that he lived a life of extreme indulgence. Um, he pursued every day, and that's nothing I want to make, I want to make a point of. It said he did it every day. Like he just didn't do it on the 4th of July and Easter weekend. No, he did this every day. Every day he woke up and his goal was 
that he was going to pursue the happiest life he possibly could from an earthly vantage point that day. Uh, we don't even really have um, any any um, record that the man actually worked. It could be that he was just an investor, uh, that he he just knew how to work with money in a way to make it work for him. We certainly don't know that, and I don't want to, I don't want you to believe that he did. We just don't know. But whatever he did, he did it. His heart. He wanted his heart to be merry every day. Lazarus, on the other hand, lived apparently in the proximity of the rich man because he lived at least close enough that it would indicate that he saw the crumbs at the bottom of the table and he would have certainly enjoyed eating those crumbs. It would seem like that would be the the, the picture we get. But he didn't have he didn't have access to those crumbs. That's another thing that was new to me when I read over this. I always envisioned Lazarus as eating those crumbs. But it doesn't say he did. It said he desired to eat them. So the rich man didn't even have the the politeness to open the door and sweep the crumbs out so Lazarus could get them. He swept them up and put them in a waste can, apparently. And Lazarus saw him doing that and said, I wouldn't mind having those crumbs. But it doesn't appear like he ate the crumbs. He just desired them. And furthermore, if that wasn't bad enough, the, the lowliest, most despicable animal in, uh, in Jesus' time, the dogs, came and licked Lazarus' wounds. It, uh, it seems like, again, just from reading a little between the lines, that the rich man would have had some Band-Aids and ointment, and he could have shared with Lazarus, helped him out a little, but he didn't bother that. Um, the dogs came and, and licked. Well, you know the rest of the story. That's very we, we, We've been over that many times in our lives, haven't we? The rich man dies, he goes to hell. The... Um, the Lazarus dies, he goes to what we call heaven, right? That's, that's the way we term it. And when that conversation ensues, and, and, and the rich man, it doesn't even say he asks why he lands where he does. It assumes, from the, from the reading, it is assumed that we know. And Jesus, or, or Abraham, I should say, did go ahead and tell him. He said, well, he said, just remember that in, in life you had good things and Lazarus didn't. Well, now the tables are turned, and Lazarus has good things, and you don't. And that's the only reason that we can grab a hold of that this man is down here in hell, and Lazarus is not. He's in another place. It had something to do with the rich man's riches and how he related to Lazarus in that state of affairs. That That's the only thing we really can conclude. It certainly seems like uh, the rich man had a religion that he embraced of some sort. He knew about um, his five brethren that he really wanted, you know, Lazarus to go and testify to. And, and no, Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. And, and the rich man didn't say, well, who are, the, who are they? Moses and prophets. I, I'm not familiar with them. No, he knew who they were. He, he knew exactly who they were. I believe in this particular story and in the context of the of, of who is being talked to, I think the rich man is likely representing the Pharisees. That's my opinion. Because in another place, um, Jesus talks about the Pharisees as being people that devoured widows' houses. So that's what I, that's what I believe. I believe simply in context, the sin of the rich man was that he took his master's money, God's money, he devoured it on high living when he could have helped 
the most neglected along the way, and, uh, and he chose not to. I believe that was his offense. So the question is, why would anyone live like the rich man? Like, like why, why would they do, why would anybody do that? Well, I think, uh, riches do funny things to people. This is, this is my opinion. I think that they tend to make people feel like they have deserved what they got. Um, they have been savvy in business. They have been shrewd. And why not pamper yourself a bit when you have such a, such a large uh, portfolio and money to your, to your, um, um, at your fingertips? And what, what rich people tend to forget about is that their riches are indeed a result of God's blessing and really nothing to do with them. In fact, I would dare say that most rich people on, on the, that have ever walked the face of the earth largely are there because of some unfair advantage that they have had. Not always, but largely. You know, it's, all, it's also hard to find a rich man that is a humble man. Uh, generally, there is not association between classes when it comes to the rich and the poor. That's why the rich go to Martha's Vineyard, and they have houses on Martha's Vineyard, and just a few hundred miles away in the Bronx, you have the lowest of the low. And those two, the, the people in the Bronx don't go and visit Martha's Vineyard. Neither do the people at Martha's Vineyard stop by the Bronx on the way there. See, they don't mingle. They don't mingle. See, I think a rich man generally feels that anybody could do as well as he if they'd just be willing to work and exert themselves a little bit. Um, but again, generally very wealthy people. Generally, I'm not saying always, but generally have had some sort of a break in life that has aided them to get there, and it is not considered that not every poor person is there because of some mismanagement in his life. I'm interested that in Revelation 21.8, when it describes the people that are going to find themselves in hell, it's a pretty short list, actually, pretty short. But one of the one of the classes of people that will find themselves there are called the abominable, the abominable. Well, we just read that word here a few verses ago, didn't we? Those things that you highly esteem are an abomination to God. And in this context, the abomination was the misuse of this man's riches. All right. So where does this put you and I as we lay our lives beside this scripture and? And consider what we have learned from what we just read. What is the take-home lessons for us? Well, number one, you and I have to be honest today that we live among some of the wealthiest people on earth. And we are among some of the wealthiest. We have to just be simply honest with that fact that we have to identify with the wealthy. We have to be honest with that. We also have to be honest that riches are among one of the most cited reasons that the Bible gives that causes a person to lose close connection with God. I mean, this is drummed and pounded. That point is pounded throughout Scripture. You just can't miss it. I mean, it was one of the things that God told the Israelites over and over. Yeah, I'm I'm taking you to the promised land, but just remember, once you're in there, you're going to forget who I am because of, of the good things that you have around you. And 
I could point you to the church of Laodicea uh, and many other New Testament verses where it talks about people that were rich that had no idea how poor they were spiritually because they had robbed them of spiritual um, fullness. Psalm 106.15, in the context of talking about how the Israelites had lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, it said God sent leanness of soul instead. I think another thing we should, we should think about is living in the richest nation on earth does not necessarily give us the freedom to indulge and consume our wealth according to societal, societal norms. And I think this particular point is the hardest one to navigate. What does godly stewardship look like in an indulgent society? Does that mean that you and I should still be living in a log cabin because we did that one time? Does that mean we can never purchase anything that's new or nice? Is that what it means? Does that mean we can't have anything beyond utility in our houses or our cars or so on? Just where do we cross the line from being a steward to a godless consumer? I'm going to delve into this just a little bit, and I'm going to boil it down to two pressure points that I think we particularly need to be aware of in our generation. I don't think it's unique to our generation, actually, but I think it's more broadly anticipated, expected, and enjoyed in our generation than maybe former generations just because of our wealth. Did it, did it occur to any of you today what the majority of Americans are doing today? There's something happening this afternoon the majority of Americans will be involved in. Anybody know what that is? Super Bowl, okay. We kind of know what it is even, don't we? Now, I hope none of us are going to watch the Super Bowl or, or uh, engage in that in any way, but for kicks, I looked up just a few stats, all right? So the Allegiant Stadium, where the Super Bowl will be held this afternoon, covers 62 acres, took three years to build, and it costs $1.9 billion to build. Okay, It is air-conditioned. It has 128 executive suites and 44 loge boxes. And the modern stadium has anything to... Indulge your comfy desires too. Now, the thing that threw me back on my heels was, and I, and I guess this statistic is right. You know, the internet's always right, so we'll go with that. The average seat, I guess, at this, um, at this, uh, thing this afternoon will cost you $8,000. Now, that's the average seat. I, I've heard there's some as low as 1300 But the average seat will be $8,000. And now, just for a little comparison, if you go back to, um, 1967 or 8 when the first Super Bowl was held the the average seat then I think was like 10 bucks I think and if you adjust it for inflation it still only gets you to about 35 I'm, I'm, I forget those numbers completely but it's something really really drastically different than this so my next question was who can afford this like who goes to the Super Bowl well then I further discovered that you can finance your tickets Something to the tune of 30% interest, I mean, you know. But you can do this. And I guess people do it, right? And then you can go and drink Pepsi that costs you 10 bucks a can and so on. No less than a third of the population this afternoon will be glued to their TV sets. Beer and junk food will be consumed in absolute revelry. 
Halftime shows will be immoral, and millions of dollars will be spent on 30-second TV spots. And $23 billion will be wagered this afternoon. $23 billion. Can, get you, can you get your, your, your mind around those numbers? And I could go on with other things. If you want to know something about the most recent cruise ship that has been launched in the Caribbean, uh, makes the Titanic look like a rowboat, okay? Um, unbelievable. And again, the, the amount of money people will spend to ride that cruise ship is shameful. It's absolutely shameful. Now, my question is, do the people of God belong at the Super Bowl? Do the people of God even watch the Super Bowl, okay? Do we go on Caribbean cruises? Is that what the people of God should be doing? Some questions I would just like us to consider in this area. I'm going to ask us to fairly consider the question, how far can we as the people of God wander into activities and experiences that the sole purpose is to feed and pamper the physical desires of the flesh before we do spiritual damage to our souls? The link between those two is so tight is almost unbelievable. Historically, the Christian church has roundly condemned the world and its entertaining offers. Read your Pilgrim's Progress. Read especially how the writer, um, how he describes Vanity Fair and the things in that and how the Christian and his, and his friend related to that. Read your Martyr's Mirror and consider how many times from the dungeons Writers would write, and they would caution their their friends, do not indulge in the things of this world, especially the vanities of life. Don't do that. And I had to wonder, how many of God's children in our day today are experiencing some leanness of soul because of our growing tendency to indulge the flesh in these spiritually detrimental ways? Another thing I'd like you to consider Are you and I spending our money on things that just make a statement? I'm going back to the purple that the rich man wore. And I want you to, I want you to understand that the problem was he was trying to make a statement with his clothes, right? You know, there's something, there is something to spending on something that is actually functional and brings quality with it. And sometimes the, the most expensive thing is to buy something cheap. So we understand that. If you buy something and, the re, and it's expensive but there's function and quality, that's one thing. But when I spend excessively on an article and the cost is only tied to the statement it makes or the name brand or whatever, how do I justify that beyond the rich man's purple robe? robe? How is that different? So my suggestion today that there is no room for a Christian to ever spend time or resources on recreational things or enjoy events or food beyond what is commonly recognized as common. Well, I'm not saying that. Uh, we touched on that just a little bit. Cleon touched on that just a little bit there in, um, in our Sunday school lesson where Mary poured that, that expensive ointment on Jesus' feet and some of them said, you know, they revolted in that, and they said, well, that should have been sold and given to the poor. And Jesus said, no, no, she did the right thing. I think there are times where it's completely acceptable and actually godly to splurge, okay? Now it sounds like I'm talking out of both the sides of my mouth, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with celebrating anniversaries, weddings, 
I don't even think there's anything wrong with splurging on your wife, just so you know, on Valentine's Day is Wednesday, so just thinking, you know. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, okay, so you got the point. I think there's times when we can splurge. And I, I'll even go so far as to say that I think that there are times that we can even do things that are strictly recreational. But I almost hesitate to say that because the problem is we don't have any problem doing that, right? Our problem is making sure we don't enter into that arena further than what is godly. But I, I truly think we can do some of that. But can, in our doing of these things, can we, can we have a godly restraint? And do we do it every day? That's the question. Is this an occasional thing for special, for special occasions, or is it an everyday event? On a positive, and we're going to leave you on the positive note here, I believe something we can do with our resources, the stewards of God's resources, is to use our resources to bless others in meaningful and unexpected ways. The Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Does anybody know what the word cheerful means in the Greek? That word means hilarious. A hilarious giver. When you're hilarious, you're not really mentally with it. I mean, like, you're, you're kind of just out of it. You're just laughing like, you're just hilarious. You get it, right? You're really, not really thinking seriously. You're, so the, the, the idea is, you're not even thinking seriously when you give away. You're just, you're just handing it out. Man, just, I, I, and, and it gives you your jollies. That's where it's like, so you hand out a hundred and it's like, man, I felt so good. I'm going to, I'm going to do that again. You know, it's a hilarious giver, right? So what if, what if the rich man would have just, just had Lazarus in for a really nice meal t- two times a week? Do you think God would have noticed that? I think he would have. Um, Maybe he'd have been convicted and said, I enjoy this so much, let's just have, you know, Lazarus, just come over for supper every night. Every night you can just come to my place for supper. How can we be hilarious givers? How can we be alert for other ways to bless people in meaningful ways? Um, I'm going to give you one that is personal to me, and I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me on this one, right? So I don't eat out real often, but when I do... There's one thing I'm always very mindful to do, and that is to tip generously, okay? And and I know that there's people that stand in pulpits and, and thunder out that we as Mennonites do not tip the way we should. I have no idea if that's true or not. I have no clue. I don't know what you give as a tip when you go out to eat. I don't know. That's beside the point. But I'm encouraging you to, to tip generously. And I'll tell you why I do it. When I was a teenager, um, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever, me and some of my friends went to a pizza joint. I remember that. But it was a pizza joint where the expect, expectation was that you would tip. So we went there, and we had our pizza. And the waiter, that waitress, that evening did a lousy job. I mean, there was no doubt about it. She did. She could have she upped her game a lot. She just did not do a good job. She was mixing up our drinks. She was... I can't remember what all, but it was not good. And this really peeved us, all right? And we were like, she doesn't really deserve a tip. And so what was done that evening is we we took the pennies out of our pockets and we threw pennies on the table. It was basically an insult. The Spirit of God has convicted me. I have never forgotten that. I have regretted that with everything that's in my being ever since. And if I would know where that peach joint was and I would know that woman... I would apologize to her. So if she listens to this, I hope she hears it. 
But, you know, as I thought about that later, she might have just been having a bad day. Who knows what was going on in that person's life? And here we were adding insult to her bad day. So it doesn't matter what service I get in the restaurant, lousy, great, it doesn't matter. There is going to be a generous tip from Dwight Burkholder simply because I feel like that is my duty after that insult all those years ago. There's many other things I could name. That is, you know, there's probably better things I could have even talked about. But be alert. If you are alert for ways you can use your mammon of unrighteousness to lay out good things in your eternal habitation, I know God will show those to you. So the closing question, and to summarize this lesson, it's this. Are you and I using our resources in a way that we will be joyfully received into our heavenly habitations when that time comes? Or are we squandering them on indulgent living and forfeiting our right to enjoy an eternity with Jesus? I believe stewardship from God's perspective is to live modestly and to give liberally. And may we be known as those kinds of people. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you at the close of this chapter, as we have looked at this chapter in your Bible, and have considered how that um, we are indeed stewards of your things, and we do not always relate to them as stewards should. God, I pray that you would forgive us where we have not, where we have failed grievously and have squandered your possessions on things that are trivial and very carnal. Lord, help us to be people that are known to uh, give liberally and to, uh, and to be very careful not to spend on ourselves for just uh, trivial and earthly things. Lord, I thank you for each brother and sister in this attendance this morning. Bless their lives. Bless those of our number that are not here, wherever they are. Uh, bless the, uh, those of our number that are at Bible school. And uh, bless that term as that commences here uh, tomorrow. Lord, just continue to be with us through the rest of the day and the rest of the week, and may your blessing smile upon us. We ask this in your name. Amen.